Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. Okay, J.J., what company do you think of when you think of what's called a one-for-one model? Like buy one, get one free. That <laughs> That's every company. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> like, I have oh, a lot of like McDonald's and Burger King and yeah. Like the, ben and Jerry's. One. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I am looking everywhere for buy one, get one free pretty much. I actually told that joke. We're, we're building a house right now. I told that joke to my contractor. He said, well, it's going to cost this much. I said, oh, well, I've got a buy one, get one free coupon. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't think it was funny. <laughs> really? Weird. Okay. No, I'm not talking about buy one, get one free. I'm uh-huh. talking about like if you buy one of these, we'll give away one to somebody in need. You see oh. these things a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom's. Tom's Shoes. That's yeah. exactly it. And the reason, because there are other companies that do this. There's like eyeglass companies that do it. There's yep. coffee companies that do mm-hmm. it. I think there's a bicycle company that do it. All yeah. sorts of things. But Tom's is the pioneer of that whole idea. Yeah. They're the ones who actually said, we'll do it. And yeah. we have an interview today with Blake McCoskey. Yeah. He came on the show, was gracious enough to do it. He sold 50% of Tom's for like $750 million or something, like some ridiculous amount of money. And it sounds like, well, he must be some business strategist guy. But what was amazing to me in the interview, we actually started talking to him, and that was never his purpose. He saw some villagers in need of shoes. Mm-hmm. He thought, well, I'm going to go home to L.A. and or wherever he was. might have been in Nashville or Dallas. He's been all over the place. Yeah. But he said, I'm just going to sell 250 pairs of shoes to my friends, and for each pair of shoe they buy, I'm going to be able to go back and give one. You know, I'm going to charge them twice as much and go back and give a pair of shoes to these yeah. people. It was just a project. 250 shoes was it. <laughs> a terrible business model. Yeah. I mean, if you think about like, like reverse engineer that. Yeah. Like if somebody came to you and said, I, I need an investor. I'd like, I want to sell a product and then create another one and then find somebody who needs and give it. give it away. And, and literally like in a very hard place to ship to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah. This thing ended up being, you know, essentially a billion dollar company. Oh yeah. Company I owned Tom's. 10 years. Uh, everybody I know practically owned Tom's at least at one point or another has had some Tom's shoes. Like I did not, know of that model like now when you hear about glass one companies for one, or one yeah. for one it, most people go you know like tom's you buy one give one away and then everybody goes oh yeah like tom's like we know it now yeah. because he created this brand and what i love about the story you'll hear it in the interview jj it was fairly accidental i mean he's definitely a good business mind he, he yeah, started yeah. businesses early in life and you know started them scaled them up sold them started them scaled them up sold them and then went on the amazing race and then traveled around the world and met these kids who needed shoes and accidentally started this billion-dollar empire yeah. Yeah. In, in 10 years. I mean, that's fast. That's crazy. For any kind of fashion brand. And did it with a horrible, horrible business model. <laughs> that is a beautiful story. It's a story about passion and people falling in love with the narrative behind the company. Yeah. And activating what we would call the philosophical part of the customer's passions, yeah, those kinds of things. I just really like today's interview. I think you yeah. can get a lot out of it. And we actually, by the end of the interview, I go kind of personal with him. And I, I don't do that with every guest, but I was yeah. just very curious because he's such an interesting guy. Yeah. You know, we talk a little bit about his parents. We talk a little bit about what it means to suddenly be famous or really wealthy and how that changes your interactions with people. Yeah. It's interesting. For business application, for our listeners, he also covers something I think is really helpful. I ask him who are the first three people he hired and why. Mm-hmm. And I, I literally mean like the positions that you filled yeah, and yeah. why. And I thought his answers to those questions were incredibly revealing and very, very helpful. So if you're looking for business advice, make sure to listen for that. Uh, I'm not going to wait any longer. I think it's a wonderful interview. Here's my conversation with Blake Mycoskie.
Blake McCoskey, thanks for joining us on Building a Story Brand. Thank you for having me. Well, I think most people probably, if they're under about 40 years old, have a pair of Toms somewhere in their house, and maybe they're even wearing them right now. Everybody's familiar with your brand. What they may not know, though, is that you had started a bunch of companies before you started Tom's Shoes. And one of them was, even when you were in college, you started a laundry service and you charged, it was really very Huck Finn of you. It's like that story of everybody, you know, Huck Finn and everybody else is painting his fence. You started charging your roommates and stuff to do their laundry. And that was a super successful thing. You sold that and you're still in college at that point. Then you started a, essentially a billboard company where you, you know, in Nashville, Tennessee, you saw in L.A. they were putting on the sides of buildings posters, uh, giant 10-story posters to promote movies, and you thought the country music industry might use it, do that in Nashville, and you started that company and sold that company. I want to know, because we've got 40,000 business leaders listening to this podcast, you're obviously born an entrepreneur, and early on in your career, when you're thinking about business and thinking about starting business, what would shine for you? I mean, when you're looking out at the landscape and going, I, I want to start a business, what were the things that you saw in the laundry business and in the billboard idea that you thought, I can do this, this is a sound idea? I think the interesting part of your question is it lends to something that I talk a lot about, especially with people who are choosing a career path, is I actually never set out to start a business. Like I wasn't a person that saw entrepreneurship as a career path as you might see becoming a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher. You know, I think, you know, when I was in college, I had an injury and I was on crutches. And because of the crutches, I couldn't carry my laundry down to the facility. So my laundry was piling up in my room. And I looked in the yellow pages, remember what those were, and <laughs> um, nothing existed. And so I, I started a solution to a problem I was having. And yes, it was it became a business. And so I learned a lot about business through that. But like all the different businesses I had before Tom's and then even Tom's, they were more of like something I noticed in society where there was a challenge or a problem or something that I felt like a business could solve. And I thought that I had a unique idea or take on how to solve it or how to capitalize on that situation. So I never really thought of myself as a business person or as an entrepreneur, even though now I look back and clearly see what I was doing was entrepreneurship 101. At the same time, though, there's this mentality that's different about you and probably different about a lot of our listeners where, you know, a lot of people would be laying in bed looking at the laundry on their floor and they'd go, man, this really stinks. I wish somebody would create a solution to this and it would never occur to them to actually create it themselves, right? And so I think that's that entrepreneurial gene. And then on the other side, there's probably not very many eight-year-old boys who are laying in bed going, you know, I hope God gives me the chance to do laundry someday. You weren't drawn to do laundry. You, you weren't a follower or a consumer. You were born somebody who, you know, like it or not, was designed to make money. And I agree with you. I don't think, I mean, I believe you. I don't think that your motivation was to make money here. I guess what I'm getting at is, was your, the satisfaction just the problem-solving side of it? Is that what gratified you? Or was it actually serving people? I think it was a little of both. I mean, I think that indefinitely on the serving people more and the latter with Tom's, but initially, it was like the joy and the excitement of creating something that didn't exist before. Like I loved the idea of having an idea of something that could work and then building a product or solution or whatever around it to serve a purpose. 
and and so that to me is like a game. Like I mean, I was yeah. I was going to ask that. Is is it game for you? Yeah, it's a little bit of a game and a little bit of a competition, if you will, because most businesses have competitions. And so it's like, how do I create something that's going to win in the marketplace? Because it's fun. It's fun in the same way that an inventor in a lab gets excited when they discover a new chemical compound that could cure a disease or something like that. Like that's what gets me excited, and that's frankly what keeps me engaged now you know 11 years later at tom's is like okay what are our biggest issues both socially in the world and also business wise and how can i keep lending my creative thinking and solution oriented mentality and opportunity spotting kind of gift to those opportunities or challenges you played semi-pro or almost professional tennis didn't you at one time yes yep so you probably have a competitive nature you brought up the competition aspect of it I'm curious, are you somebody who likes to identify another company that you want to compete with or take down? Or is it more of a competitive spirit where you just feel like you're competing with yourself every day? Yeah, it's a little bit more of like a pro golfer that your competition is yourself, not the people around you. Because I feel like at least the businesses that I've tried to start, and then once again, definitely with Tom's, is you know we didn't set out to take market share from Vans or Converse or Sperry. We ended up doing that because we set out to do something that was revolutionary and different and exciting and driven by a purpose. So it's more about like me being my best self and me using my time on the planet to benefit the most people possible because I get a lot of joy from that. And then that naturally puts me into a competitive state with other brands, but that's never the end. Just like the end has never been to make money. I've made a ton of money, way more money than I ever possibly could have ever dreamed of. But that was never the goal, but it is a part of the game, I guess you would speak. You really just put one foot in front of the other, and that competitive spirit and problem-solving interest led to extreme success, I'm guessing. I'm like the most linear, one-foot-in-the-other thinker you'll probably ever meet. I am like, what are we doing tomorrow? How do we get this? How do we ship this? Like, how do we, you know, I mean... I think what's interesting about success is people credit you with all these different grandiose, mythical kind of characteristics and ideas. And it's nice to read in an interview, but it's the truth is, is like, I saw some kids in Argentina that needed shoes. My goal is to help 250 of them. I made 250 pairs of shoes. My goal is to sell them that summer, come back at Christmas and give them to them as a gift. Like that was the whole business plan. It was not to hire anyone. It was not to create a business. It was not to create... I mean, anything, but then I also recognize that when something is moving and it starts moving quickly, like in order to put more feet in front of the other to keep moving, you've got to have help and, and strategy. You've got, you got to know how to scale up. Yeah. I think that like that, like all my businesses have actually been, oh, what if we did this? We could solve this problem for this one person or for these 10 people. And then the 10 people have often come hundreds or thousands or millions. And that's why I always say to other entrepreneurs is like, don't try to boil the ocean. Don't spend all your time and energy trying to get your product to be perfect. Just like get it out there, start doing it, and then go from there. Fix it as you go. Exactly. I mean, if somebody came to me and said, I want to start a business, and what I'd like to do is sell a product and then give the same product away for free somewhere where I've got to fly across the world and find the person who needs it, I'm just going, this is crazy. Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, we called it just a project for the first six months because we didn't even think it could be a financially stable business. We saw it more as a 
a nonprofit, but instead of asking people for donations, we asked them to buy a pair of shoes. And so that was the thinking. And then as it became actually looking like it could be a viable business, it was funny. That's when I kind of started getting, it didn't matter because I wasn't raising money. I didn't need investors. I could just kind of do what I was doing. But I had a lot of people who were friends in the business community being like, Blake, this is a waste of your time. Like, you're not going to make any money. And I was like, well, you know, whether you make money or not, like this is going to be really fun. It's going to help people. Like I feel connected to these kids. Like, and then once we actually started like being on a path to making money, the narrative quickly changed. Like, oh, this is a genius marketing idea. And I'm like, no, this is not a genius marketing idea. Like that was not the point. The point was it was a business model that we thought could sustain the giving and it happened to be that we got really good at making the shoes at a low cost so that we could be profitable as well. And it probably doesn't sound very romantic or noble or sexy or whatever word you want to add to entrepreneurs. It happens all the time. But that was it. It was just like one foot in front of the other. And then over time, as it started to grow, we had to get really good at lots of other things. But just to get it off the ground, it was very linear thinking. It was very, I see a problem and I have an idea how I can help solve it. Yeah. You did something else when the company started to succeed. You had an interesting approach to create passionate fans. You sent out teams of college students to colleges and had these sort of representatives. And my actual COO who runs my company was on one of your teams and still uses a lot of your, a lot of the stuff you did to build your culture there in our company. So we're benefiting from 10 years later. But I'm wondering how you went from, okay, this is a popular idea to scaling up so quickly when did you realize and why did you know that you were going to have to have a ground game to introduce some young college students really into this business model? Yeah, the reverse engineering is kind of like following where the passion is. So I don't know if that makes sense. So when you sense passion in the marketplace and there, there's these raving fans coming on about your shoes, you sort of want to pour gasoline on that fire. You want to chase that. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And so we started to see that our greatest fans and and passionate customers were college students. And so we're like, well, we got to get out to get more college students, you know, and let's get in vans and let's go out there and let's engage them and let's listen to them and let's introduce them to the brand. So that's the theme, I think, is like so much of Tom's growth or other business I started been like organically following where the opportunities present themselves versus a strategy of like, oh, we got to reach this demo. I mean, Frankly, that's the stuff that drives me crazy about Tom's now is we get into all this research and customer target groups and how are we going to get after them. And, and it's just like, ah, oh, like it seems so premeditated now versus just kind of go where they already are and love them and, and kind of be a part of what they're doing and they're going to want to be a part of you. It's kind of like, I mean, some level, the Young Life Ministry, if you think about that, like that whole philosophy of you know, go where they are as high school students is a very similar approach to marketing that we've taken. I'm going to ask some questions about something you just hinted on in terms of things have changed. And there's definitely a more corporate approach since somebody bought 50% of your company. But I want to back up a little bit more. As you were scaling up, walk me through the first three critical, important hires that you made. Who were they? You don't have to name their names, but what position did you bring around you to sort of staff your liabilities or to help you? Well, first is just someone to help you do stuff, right? So my first employee 
who became, you know, basically ran all the operations for Tom's. And I met him on a Craigslist ad and convinced him to not. You bought a lawnmower from him? and (laughs) Yeah, literally. I mean, I was going to intern for the summer and then go to graduate school. And I convinced him just to stay. And he was with me for, gosh, seven or eight years. And then now he's off traveling around the world with his wife and, you know, really doing some interesting things. But I think that first it's just like you just need body to help you. Like you need to not be alone and you're an entrepreneur. You need – and also he had some – I didn't realize this at the time, but he had some skills that maybe I didn't have around operations and really being detail-oriented. And it came in really helpful when we were working on all of our logistics and stuff. So first was just someone to help me. The second one was – and this is a really important one – is someone who's good at sales. I think I'm good at communicating a vision – in essence, selling the vision or selling the big idea. But in terms of like block and tackling sales and having that persistence and calling on people and, and making sure that you're, you know, have strategy around it and you have the credibility, like that was not my passion or skill set. So the first kind of, I would say, senior employee that we really had to pay like a real salary to was like a really great salesperson that had worked at Nike and and other footwear companies. And that was a really early hire? How, how many people were that on was, staff? I think, I think I was employee number nine, eight or nine. So I had the first like seven or eight employees were basically all interns that graduated to employee status. And that was just because they were had the positive attitudes and they were working hard and they were doing everything right. from packing boxes to calling press. So sales, I mean, that's almost like a, the second or third real position that you brought on was you needed somebody to sell this stuff. Yeah, because I mean, I was doing it first all myself, but then, you know, once you start to get like real accounts like department stores and stuff, there's a lot of detail and and kind of industry knowledge and retail math and all that stuff you need to know. So I would say in a lot of organizations, like first is like someone just to help carry the load. Second, someone to help grow the business. So that's sales. And then the third person is to kind of make sure that like what you sell, you can actually deliver. And that was my, you know, head of production who would really make sure that we were delivering good product. I'll be back in a moment with the rest of my conversation with Blake Mikoski. Welcome to another segment of Marketing Mythbusters with Kula Callahan. Hi, Kula. Hey, Don. In your Wonder Woman pose. Of course. What is today's marketing myth? Today's myth is this. Your website should say everything about your company. Well, shouldn't it? It actually should not, Don. <laughs> I truly believe that the majority of customers that I coach are losing money because their website is too cluttered. Wow. Okay, go back and explain this a little bit because this, you know, we review thousands of websites a year. Exactly. And yep. it's true. If you open up a website and it's got tons of text and tons of links, the mind literally says too confusing. And they immediately disengage. It just reminds me of a, an email response a friend of mine used to send. If I sent more than two paragraphs, he just sent back TLDNR. <laughs> the too first time he did it, did I was like, what does read. that mean? Is that what too it long is? did not read. Oh, incredible. <laughs> but that's it. what the brain's doing when people Absolutely. go to websites. Well, yeah. how do we fix that? What do we do? So just some practical advice for our listeners here. So in the top right corner of your website, that is dominant real estate because when someone comes to your site, their eye moves in the Z pattern. So top left should be, you know, your logo or your tagline. The top right corner should 100% be a direct call to action. And if yeah. it's cluttered or if you don't have a direct call to action, you're losing money. Or if I mean, you're you saying things are. like contact. Instead of like buy now, you're saying contact. Or my favorite, learn more. <laughs> so passive aggressive. About us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, careers. about us. 
Oh, careers. What do you say to somebody who actually wants, they need all those links. Like people do come there looking for careers. People do come there trying to contact them. Where do they put all that stuff? Instead of the dominant real estate of top right, where do they go? Yeah, they'll put it all the way at the bottom in what we like to call the junk drawer. So all those additional links that people are coming to your website looking for, they're going to search around for them anyways. Yeah, if they're going to look for it, don't put it in your dominant real estate. Go put it somewhere else. If you're going to look at a house, like if someone's showing a house, you want the outside to be really pretty so that they come in and see the inside. If the outside is confusing... The the job of the first sentence when you're writing a book is to sell the second sentence. Exactly. (laughs) The job of the top of the website is to keep people scrolling down. Absolutely. Yeah. So what we say a lot is that your website is basically like a first date with your customers. So go back and think about your first date with Betsy, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I need to brush my hair, brush my teeth and like not talk about all my baggage, right? Sadly, I said too much on the first date. It took me four years to get another first date, which (laughs) which I shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Stop talking. So with the first date, really, you just want to give them enough information to say yes to the second date. Yeah. So the header on your website should only really answer three questions. It should, what we call, pass the grunt test. You need to say what you offer. So like that physical thing that you're selling. How it makes your customer's life better. So what benefit are they going to get out of buying that thing? And then what do they need to do to buy it? That direct call to action. So even by just cleaning up the header of your website and by likely taking a lot of text off of the header of your website, you're going to see more engagement. Yeah, because well, on, our, on one of our, our most recent site, you know, it's our guide program, which you're obviously the director of. Mm-hmm. But it just says, become the marketing coach everybody wants. So that's what's in it for you. Right. And then it says, story brand guide certification or story brand marketing coach certification, whatever it says. So that's what it is. Yeah. What's in it for you is that you get to guide everybody wants. And then there's a button that says apply now. That's it. Yeah, that that's is it. That's all that's there. And then there's a person smiling. So if you do this, you'll be happy is what that subliminally says. Totally. And yeah. that, is, that has performed extremely well for us. Extremely And so well. I agree with you, Cole. I think most people, most companies, they just put so much text on their website. It's like a garage sale. They're pulling everything out of their company and they're putting it on totally. tables in the front lawn <laughs> and it looks cheap and confusing and cluttered. And cluttered. Yep. But when you have that one beautiful diamond that's behind this glass <laughs> case, and you're, I want that. Anyway, if you want to know more about creating a website that customers will respond to, literally this could be hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars you're losing if you have a confusing website with too much information. Kula is absolutely right. If you want to learn more about that, come to one of our live workshops. We do them every month in Nashville, Tennessee, and you can learn more at storybrand.com. Come spend two days with us and make changes to your marketing collateral that will get exponential returns on your investment. Again, go register at storybrand.com. And while you're there, look at the top right corner of our website because we ain't got that many links, just the one that invites you to come. All right, Kula, thanks so much. Busting Myths is my favorite. (laughs) okay now i want to go back to bain buys half your company you're still 50 percent owner and you're still the you're not ceo you call yourself chief shoe deliverer chief shoe giver well chief shoe giver so chief shoe giver i've always had that title since we started because i think titles are ridiculous so i allowed every single person I think out of the first, up until we had about 150 employees, and then my HR director convinced me to change my philosophy a little bit. But at least for the first 150, everyone got to choose their own title. Because the thing is, a title is mainly is a tool to do business with the outside world. It should not be a tool to manage the inside culture and world, I think. Because I think a leader can be anyone, no matter what their title is, 
And if you've read that book by Robin Sharma, I think it's a great one if your readers haven't. What's the name of that book? Uh, Leader Without a Title. So my philosophy was is like give yourself a title that will allow you to do your job the best. And so if you need to be a VP of marketing because that's going to allow you to get the outside world to take your phone call, then be a VP of marketing. If you can just be you know, sales dude, then be sales dude. And so we had all kinds of crazy <laughs> You had titles. 17 CEOs at one time, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, we had, <laughs> it was amazing that when you actually gave people the responsibility and told them to choose a title and they knew their peers were going to see it, very few people inflated their title. Yeah, so I would imagine really so, yeah. Interesting. So mine was always chief shoe giver because I felt like that was my main purpose in starting the business was to give shoes. And so I should be the chief shoe giver. So I've been chief shoe giver long before the Bain transaction. So now in the world of official titles, I'm the chairman of the board and founder, and I'm perfectly happy with those two titles. You had an advisory board before Bain. Now do you have a board? The great thing about the relationship with Bain has truly been like a partnership. It's been very non-private equity-esque. If your listeners understand the private equity world and what happens, obviously, when they typically invest. But you know, it's a 50-50 partnership. The board is you know, a couple folks from Bain, myself, and then our CEO, who we did hire, Jim Malling, who we love. And it's a small group of people that really, when we get together for board meetings, it's not about, did you do this? Did you do that? Accountability. It's more of like, what's going on in the business and how can we help? And you know, we've been with Bain now for two and a half years, and the relationship has been nothing but collaborative. I feel incredibly blessed to have them as my partner. All the things that people told me to worry about, knock on wood, I haven't had to worry about because we've, we've really worked well together. One of the things about running a company that is the size of our company, and we tend to double size about every year, but every year I feel like we can pivot a little less quickly than the year before, even though we pivot pretty quickly now. And I've stayed away from investors, stayed away from partners, stayed away from boards, barely have a C-suite, be very careful about that. Not for any other reason except just we just want agility. We want to be able to move and pivot very quickly. Did you lose some of that when you had other people in the decision-making room? You know, I think we lost some of that earlier than Bain. I mean, I think, you know, when we got to 400, 450 employees, offices around the world, you know, lots of different executives, we lost some of that nimbleness for sure. I think if anything... Bain has come back and helped me be more clear as an entrepreneur of what our mission is, what do we want to be great at, what are the things that we're doing that are actually distracting us from our mission or from being great at. And so they've actually kind of, you know, in a good way, have kind of forced me to be more sharp in my pencil, so to speak, and really focus on the things that are the most important in the business and the mission. Kind of go pro a little bit. Yeah. But now I will say, in fairness to the question is, there are definite times now that we have to take two or three or four extra steps to make a decision because I have a 50-50 partner. But I think that that's a very fair thing. And for the most part, it makes the decisions better, even though it takes a little longer. So yes, we don't move as fast, but I think that there's more brain power around the table when we make decisions. Was it comfortable for you or uncomfortable? And this is really like a question just asking how you're wired. When you suddenly didn't know half your employees' names and you really didn't know what some of these departments were actually doing or whether they were even working 40 hours a week, how easy was it for you to let go of control and begin to delegate and trust your team? 
I'm wired in a little bit of a different way than I would say most of my entrepreneur friends in this regard. And that I have a saying that also I think Yvonne Chouinard, founder of Patagonia, says about his management styles. We both say that we have MBAs in management. And it's not because we went to school. It's because we manage by absence. And literally, from the earliest days of Tom's, I mean, I got in one of those Airstreams and started traveling around the country, you know, selling the mission and the vision and the product. And I would come back every couple months and see how we're doing. And that was with 10 employees or 20 employees. And so when it got to hundreds of employees, I mean, I was so far past trying to know what everyone does and manage. It was always about really trusting a few key people who love to do that, who are are truly great managers and great HR folks and great organizational behavior folks and know how to motivate. I would always focus on motivating at a macro level and then that really lend to the managers and the department heads to manage on a micro level because that's just that's just not how I'm wired. Well, it's interesting that you have that ability, that sort of high trust ability, because most entrepreneurs on a smaller level really can't cross that bridge. You know, they get to the point where it's 10 employees. And I know of a guy with a furniture store in Houston, Texas, and he's extremely successful, extremely successful. He makes hundreds of millions of dollars out of one store. And he was once asked, why do you only have one store? This is a giant town. You could put 25 stores in this town. And he said, you know, you just can't watch the cash registers if you have more than one store. <laughs> I just thought, that's amazing. But he's, and that's you know, frankly how most entrepreneurs are. And, and most friends of mine that have been very successful, they're successful because they are on top of every detail all the time. They're maniacally focused on, you know, every consumer touch point and and I think that's a great way to be. It's just not how I was. So I try to hire people like that. Would you say that there's a cap to that? I mean, obviously, you just told a story about a guy who's making hundreds of millions of dollars with one store. He's an anomaly. And he's probably exhausted, right? Would you say that there's a cap to that? Ultimately, somebody who's got this $10, $15 million company out there, and they've got how many, 50 employees, and they, they just can't stop micromanaging. I would say to them, that might be as big as your company ever gets. You know, that's just anecdotal. But do you feel that way too, that that's a bridge they're going to have to cross if they want this thing to keep growing? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think there's a lot of successful entrepreneurs. I mean, probably Steve Jobs being the famous, most famous of them that were incredibly controlling, maniacally focused on every detail, and they still find a way to trust to a degree and have scale. So I think the point is a fair one in that if you really want to scale and grow your business, it's good for you both personally and the business to give other people control of certain things and then have that trust built in. But, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs I know that are still running big businesses that are still, you know, obsessing over all kinds of things that I personally don't think I would ever even think about. What's your role at the company now? What does it look like day to day? No, the funny thing is that it's different every day. Like, I mean, my philosophy is to serve our CEO first, our company at large, you know, kind of second. And then I would say, you know, our customer and then our partners with Bain and like kind of that order, you know, because if I'm really a great partner to our CEO and asking him, like, how can I as the founder do things that you can't do as a CEO and how can I make your job easier? Then if his job's easier and he's feeling supported, then he's going to run the company in a way that makes me proud and makes my 50% grow in value. So that's my first role. 
and often he and I together will say, okay, like, okay, for the next month, I want you to focus on this because we really need help here. Or for this season, it would be great if you really spent more time, you know, just in general with the company, like doing coffee chats and talking to people and getting involved in understanding the heartbeat of the culture. And I mean, right now I'm, I'm a hundred percent focused on a really revolutionizing and evolving our giving model. We pioneered something 11 years ago that now you can't go to a grocery store and not see like 10 one-for-one products. So the idea of one-for-one that we created and pioneered, while once was radical and also a big competitive advantage, now is quite readily available on all kinds of purchases. So we're not going to abandon one-for-one, but we need to do more than just our one-for-one shoe giving. So probably next spring, next fall, we're going to launch something that we're working on now that will allow our customers to engage in giving and having social activism in their local communities on top of the shoe giving. And so I'm spending a lot of time with a small team kind of really looking like what does the future of Tom's giving look like and how can we have even more impact with the dollars that we spend. And I'll probably spend, you know, the next couple months on that and then I'll probably bounce to another topic or project after that. But it's always different. I'm not in the office a ton. I mean, so I try to work from home a lot. I work from, you know, traveling. I work from on the road speaking, you know. And so I try to keep a really small team that can help me with whatever projects I'm, I'm personally focused on. But I love it because it's always different. You guys have also moved into coffee and glasses, eyeglasses. Yeah, the glasses has been, gosh, such a fun and exciting business to be in because when you buy a pair of Tom's eyewear, you're literally helping someone who's blind get their eyesight back. I mean, it's literally like the craziest thing that we do. I mean, even when I'm in the field sometimes and I witness and talk to patients that had cataract surgery or got the prescription glasses, I mean, it's just like, wow, this all happened because someone bought a pair of $85 shades in Southern California or in Dallas, Texas. Or in, I mean, it still blows my mind even though we created it. And I love it. And I think the, the designs are great. And it's really been a nice, it continues to be one of the fastest areas of growth in our business. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. One last question. You started out as this entrepreneur. You were on the amazing race, which we didn't even talk about with your sister. You scaled up a company to a global brand. Probably almost everybody knows about Tom's Shoes, certainly who's listening to this podcast. Your life has changed a lot. You've become extremely successful almost in everybody's eyes. And normally that would change you a lot. I'm wondering, what were the biggest changes that you had to deal with, with yourself, with relationships, with your family? Mm, really good question. One of the things that I will say is, and I think you'll understand this based on your career and the many books that you've written, is the success has actually brought so much more humility than pride. Because the more success I've had and the more people come up to me and tell me their life changed because they read my book or that, that Tom's was the first socially conscious you know purchase they ever made and now they're only support companies that have purposeful missions and it feels like such a responsibility to keep making good decisions and keep leading from a place of service that it really is humbling because it's pressure and it's responsibility and and I feel like I still owe the world and our customers so much more so I think that in the 11 years, you know, I think the initial years when we started having some success, there was definitely some pride and some ego and some, you know, oh, wow, look what I'm creating. 
But very quickly, as the success turned into something that was a, more of a phenomenon, something that I never could have predicted, and I definitely can't take credit for, then it was really a, a humbling thing. And it's, it's caused me to, frankly, become a little bit more introverted. So I feel like I was extremely extroverted when I started Tom's. Why more introverted? I'm really curious about that. Why, why do you think you became more introverted? Well, I became somewhat of a public figure, so my, my life and my privacy and time and energy I had to give to the world became a little bit less on my own terms. So when it is on my own terms, I choose to turn inward to my family and few close friends versus wanting to be at a social gathering and talking to everyone because that's kind of like my job now. So and you become a little bit of a public figure and by no means am I a public figure like celebrities, but enough to where when I'm in a big room or when I'm at an airport and I meet people like they expect a certain Blake to show up. Right. And you feel the pressure of that? And I feel the pressure of that. So the thing for me is, is, well, I need to be able to have a place where I can just be myself. And usually that's in smaller settings and quieter moments. And, um, and maybe that's part of just getting a little older. Do you sometimes feel like it's hard to get a straight conversation? And by that, I mean, every conversation is kind of with a stranger or with somebody new is sort of affected. It's affected by the fact that they knew about you before you ever walked in the room and you never knew about them. And it just makes the dynamic a little bit tiring. Exactly, in that regard. And I'm really blessed to have like really, really close friends and like uh, who've been with me for 10, 15 years, well before I started Tom's. And so they were my friends before the success and they've continued to be my greatest friends since the success. And I really cherish that. And so I think I have doubled down on those relationships versus trying to want to create a lot of new ones. Are your parents still alive? Yeah, they're alive and doing great. They're married for 48 years now, 47 years. Yeah, they're doing fantastic. Have they ever sat you down and told you how proud they are of you? Yeah, a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't imagine that was a wonderful conversation. you just accomplished so much. You've been an inspiration to so many of us, and uh, it just means a lot to be able to talk to you, Blake. Good luck in everything that you do next. Let us know if there's anything we can do for you. But it's just been a wonderful conversation. I certainly appreciate you uh, teaching us a lot about business, but also opening up. Absolutely, my pleasure. Inspirational guy. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, can you imagine, like, if your kid, you know, had that kind of story? It's <laughs> <laughs> something to be proud yeah. of. So anyway, cool. uh, Blake is doing a great job. He's got a book actually called Start Something That Matters. It was the number one New York Times bestseller not too long ago. And with every book you purchase, a new book will be provided to a child in need. It's a one-for-one model yeah, on the book, too. Yeah, you know what too. that's called? A one-for-one. One. Tom started that. Not I, buy one, get he, one free, but a one-for-one. One. The only problem, I just feel like he's ripping off Tom's with that. <laughs> yeah, that idea. He owes Tom's a lot of money for that. Not your idea, Blake. <laughs> Blake's books is a shame. We just went from like an end of sentimental to like, <laughs> Yeah, it took, how long did it take us to get cynical? <laughs> Blake. <laughs> no, it's very inspiring all the way around, and it's yeah. just really cool that he continues that on in other projects that he works in. Well, next week, I think we've got somebody equally as inspiring. Yeah. His name is Chris Gillibo. Oh, nice. And Chris started years ago, he started a conference called the World Domination Summit. Uh-huh. Have you been? No, I have not, but I have a lot of friends who have. It's crazy. Yeah. It's the, I think it's the best conference in the country. Yeah. He does it out of Portland, Oregon, and I hadn't been, but he asked me to speak maybe a couple years ago. It was just the most crazy, fun crowd. Yeah. I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, you can call it's your a conference. Lot of, all the people who I know are super creative that go kind of like Very entrepreneurial. Edge, entrepreneurial. Believe yeah. they can change the world. Yeah. Are taking 
agency. They're taking responsibility for what's going on in the world. And they're saying, hey, it's our fault. We'll fix it. Yeah. Like, it's on us now. We'll fix yeah, it. They're dominating. Yeah, they're dominating. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you call your conference World Domination Summit, I think you're going to get yeah. a special group of people <laughs> yeah, coming. Exactly. And they come. Yeah. And as a speaker, it was like driving a Ferrari. I mean, it was very <laughs> deceptive, actually, because they're so for you uh-huh. that you go to another stage and you're like, oh, they're going to love me. You're like, oh, they didn't yeah, love me. So like, much. they did World that's Domination. So much. Didn't quite dominate this like I did the World Domination. <laughs> they're very graceful. Well, part of the reason that it's such a gracious audience, this is a great curation, if you will, of people, is Chris. Yeah. You know, he's not like the most loud sort of dynamic guy. He's just all heart, and he, he's all for you, and he wants you to succeed. He's got a couple books. One is called The $100 Startup, basically how you can start up a company with just 100 bucks. And then he's got another book that's out now. We're going to talk about it called Side Hustle, From Idea to Income in 27 Days. I have a feeling Chris is the sort of guy uh-huh. that – can't stand the fact that you have a dream that you aren't doing something about. Yeah. <laughs> he just wants to pull it out of yeah. you. And he knows how. And he's just a wonderful writer. And I want you to hear a little bit of my conversation with Chris. You're definitely not going to want to miss next week's interview. But here's just a portion of my conversation. Yeah, well, it could be different for different people. And so I've created this process called a side hustle selector, uh, which essentially allows you to make that decision for yourself. And so you know, it's a pretty intuitive process. You just kind of like write down your ideas and then you're gonna rank each one of them according to a few different criteria. Uh, one of them is your motivations because I think it's important to be excited about your side hustle. It shouldn't be something that you just kind of dread to do. But also you like the profit potential, also feasibility, like how feasible is it for you to get this up and running in the next month? So you kind of like rank them according to these different ideas and then you might see something that emerges as a key theme. I think it's also important to just kind of remind people that when you make this decision, you're not making a decision for the rest of your life. And what I've seen over and over is people kind of feel this pressure and they feel overwhelmed and like they end up not making a decision because like, I don't know what decision is best, so I just don't do it. Well, with the side hustle, it's not a huge decision. If you do this whole exercise and you still come down to like, wow, these three ideas are ranked exactly you know, the same, well, just pick one, right? Because the worst thing that can happen is you get tired of it and then you go back to one of the others. All right, so that's next week. So cool. Yeah, he's a fun guy, and he's a brilliant guy. Make sure you tune in. If you haven't already subscribed to the Building a Story Brand podcast, go to iTunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts and subscribe now. That way it automatically just comes in through your email every week, and you're reminded about the terrific conversations coming up. JJ, another fantastic podcast. Love it. I think we're getting better and better at this, if I may toot our own horns. (laughs) No need for a side hustle for us. It's definitely getting more and more fun. (laughs) It's getting more and more fun. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell, and you can listen to Andrew's new record, Die. Deep, which I just got a vinyl of today. Did you see it? Yes, I did. We're going to have to listen to it over at the office. I can't wait. You can listen to it on Spotify or iTunes or support the guy. Go download the record on iTunes or buy it on Amazon and get a vinyl if you're that kind of guy, if you're a hipster. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. 